Well, for this first session, the topic is our view of God. And you may think, well, what's the point of that? In, in some sense, don't we all have the same view of God? A hundred years ago, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism to address the growing problem of liberalism in his day. And his whole point behind writing the book was to make very clear liberalism is not Christianity, period. As it relates to our conference, an interesting fact is, is that if you look at the chapters that he writes in that book, they're almost identical to the topics that we're covering here. He wrote this, this was a hundred years ago. He wrote that modern liberalism is opposed to Christianity, quote, in the first place in its conception of God. He goes on to describe the liberal position this way, quote, it is unnecessary to have a conception or an understanding of God. This is the liberal position. Theology, or the knowledge of God, it is said, is the death of religion. We should not seek to know God, but should merely feel his presence. That was a hundred years ago. Sounds contemporary, doesn't it? Sort of just forget everything that you know about God, that you've understood about God as he's revealed himself from his word. Be really quiet, be really still, and feel his presence. I, I think that 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 approach of liberalism that Machen describes really sets the agenda of most contemporary churches all the way from the song service to the sermons that you hear. And as a result of that, if we go back to the picture of the bridge, that first foundation, that first column in the bridge is compromised, having been built on a weak foundation. The problem, I think, looks like this, sort of a postmodern liberal contemporary doctrine of God. What does that look like? If you don't know the God of Scripture, it looks a bit like this. There first is no great separation between God and man. There's no gulf that exists between us. And why would there be? Because, right, he gets us, right? This is the God who's changing and evolving to your preferences and your culture. The God whose justice is defined by your sense of partiality. The God who has tolerated being worshipped however it is that you personally see fit. The God who is tolerant of other gods, of other teachings about how a man can be saved, of other beliefs about how men and women were created, the roles that men and women fill, and the relationships they choose to establish. He's a God who would never actually judge people, sentence people, or execute punishment upon people, and certainly he wouldn't send them to hell because that's probably a place that doesn't even exist anyways. He certainly didn't create the universe in six literal days, because he's probably not even capable of doing that. He's the God who is so loving, he's willing to overlook and even welcome and celebrate with you what he once said was sin. And he's a God whose chief concern, his chief end really is you. That you're happy, that you're healthy, that you're wealthy, and that you really have everything that you want. He wants you to be happy. This is the little G God that springs out of the fire of modern man's feelings, a lot like a golden calf. And while this little G God is not fashioned from gold or stone, nonetheless, he's worshiped by people and he's taught amongst congregations. He is the postmodern, customizable God that you meet when you walk into the front door of most churches. 
And, and you know people that know this God, and they talk about this God. You're, you're around people that are attending those places. This is a clear distinction between this God, the secular God, this liberal God, to the God of biblical Christianity. The biblical God isn't shaped or formed by your hands or even your feelings or even the culture or even the world in which you live. He isn't the product of your creation. He doesn't come from inside of you. He was long before you were. He is, he will be. And should he choose to save you by his grace, then his spirit actually comes to dwell within you and the one who changes is you, not him. He's the unfashioned God, not created, not shaped, not formed, not designed or brought into existence by any man or at all. He's not dependent upon you. He exists apart from you, but he makes very clear you do not exist apart from him, from his creating, forming, and giving you life. And he's chosen to reveal himself in objective truth outside of you in his word in scripture. And what does he say about himself? Well, a biblical doctrine of God, our view of God comes from scripture. You open to Genesis 1, and immediately you're met with the God who created everything from nothing. And it attests to this God is powerful, this God has a plan, this God is wise, this God is able to accomplish all that he sets out to accomplish. You look in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and you meet the God who makes and is able to keep promises. He does this with Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and then you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You, you get to the, the next book, Exodus, you get to chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, this God is descended here in the cloud, passed by in front of Moses, and what does he proclaim about himself? Very clearly, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He reveals himself in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, says, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And then those that are near to him, Deuteronomy 32, verse 3, are singing about him in the way in which he has made himself known from Scripture. Moses says this, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Don't forget, you get to the book of Job. And God has something to say about himself as he's revealing himself to Job in the form of questions. God asking those questions to Job, Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were the 
its basis sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with its doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb, and when I made the cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and a door, and I said, thus far you shall come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves stop. God seems to think that he created the world, Right? I want you to take those verses and I give them to you because they give us a good understanding of who God is. But again, you're supposed to put all that aside, forget about that, consider your feelings, look for his presence, and then, oh, by the way, tell me and impose upon me whatever your feelings are about God. I hope you realize, and I think that you do, that whatever you come up with about your feelings as it relates to God, apart from how he reveals himself in Scripture, is going to make much less of God and make much more of man. It's, it's Scripture, it is the Word of God that gives you the towering truths about God on which a biblical doctrine is built of God that provides a strong foundation for the church, standing in stark contrast to the man-centered feelings about God that you find peddled in churches today. And what you understand about your view about God is going to impact how you react to what's going on in the world. Now, all of those verses, and maybe more, would be enough to give us a biblical theology, a high view of God from Scripture that's biblically sound. But for our time this evening, I want you to look at a different place, to consider a man who knew each and every one of those verses because they were part of Scripture in his time, and he would have gazed upon them And it comes out in what we're going to look at that he actually believed them. So you're looking at here in this psalm a man with a high view of Scripture, and you get to see what a man with a high view of Scripture looks like. And consider why a biblical doctrine of God is necessary for a strong foundation in a healthy church. Look in Psalm 86. Psalm 86. This is a prayer of David. And this is what he writes. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in love and kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There's no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. 
Turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. That is a prayer of David. It is a psalm in which you hear the prayer of a man who knows God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, and he appeals to him on that basis. David knows each and every one of those verses that I just read to you from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Job. The psalm here shows us a biblical view of God is critical because it directs the godly man's actions, it sustains the godly man's life, and it glorifies the godly man's God. Why is a biblical view of God absolutely and totally critical? Because it recognizes on one hand who God is from his word and it responds to that truth. Note what David recognizes and how he responds there in Psalm 86. Number one, he identifies who is mighty and he comes. He identifies who is mighty and he comes. In those first four verses, David expresses a biblical understanding of God by recognizing here the strength and ability of God and coming to him in his time of need. If you look in those first four verses, there are seven imperatives there in four verses where he is pleading something with God. Incline your ear, answer me, preserve my soul, save your servant, be gracious to me. I cry all day long and make glad. Now, one of those you recognize is not like the other, right? I cry all day long. In those first four verses, there are two people that are highlighted. The first is David, and he tells you something about what's going on in his life. This is a point in his life, verse 1, where he's afflicted and needy. Verse 2, he says he's a godly man. Verse 2, he's Yahweh's servant who trusts in him. Verse 3, what we just looked at, he's crying all day long. Things are not well. What we find later in the prayer is he's a man in trouble. Verse 14, arrogant men have risen up against me and a band of violent men have sought my life. He didn't plan this to be this way. The psalm here doesn't reveal the point in time in David's life where he's writing this so we know exactly what's going on, but there's a few things that you can determine about him from Scripture. He is a man whose heart met God's approval, 1 Samuel 16. Also in the same chapter, he's a man anointed by God's prophet to be king, and the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him mightily. In 2 Samuel 7, you know, he's the man who's received a promise from God. In all of that... None of that equates to, oh, by the way, I'll be able to avoid trouble in my life. Trouble seems to be surrounding the godly man here. The other person in the opening verse is God, the God that David has known from his youth. The God, remember, who David sought to honor there even as a young man when he confronted Goliath. Remember that the giant in that scene noted how small David appeared to be compared to him. How ridiculous this looked. He was going to be quick to defeat him, but from David's perspective, he seemed to express how small the giant was compared to the God of Israel. And you remember all the way there back in his youth, David said, the Lord's going to deliver Goliath up. Why is he going to do that? Well, he said in 1 Samuel 17, verse 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
So as a young man, when you think about that, he was already exhibiting a high view of God from Scripture. It was already directing his response. It was already sustaining him. And it was already glorifying God during times of trouble. This is carried on throughout his life. 1 Samuel 17 is about God's honor. Psalm 86 comes along here, and oh, guess what? He still has a problem. If he's not yet king, he still has tremendous resources at his disposal, right? If he is king, he has even more resources at his disposal. But where does this guy go when he's in trouble? Verse 1, incline your ear, O Yahweh. He doesn't go to his military leaders. He could. He doesn't go to his mighty men. He could. He doesn't go to his weapons closet. He doesn't go to his friends or family. He doesn't say, hey, look, the Bible says I'm a fairly good-looking fella. Just have sympathy on me, right? He doesn't go to his personal skills in warfare and diplomacy. First one, he comes to God. He comes to God. He doesn't look deep within himself, attempting to feel God's presence. No, he speaks to God. He comes to the God who can hear him. He is no idol made of stone, wood, or existing only in his mind expressed via his feelings. He knows that he can come to this God. He can implore him to incline his ear. Why? Because he knows this God has listened to the cries of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. And oh, by the way, he's answered them. So he comes here to the God who can answer him. He knows this is the God who can reply, who can speak because he's spoken to him in the past and who can answer him, not even with words, but by rescuing him because he answered Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses this way. And as we heard before, he certainly answered Job. He comes to the God who can preserve him. This is his plea for God to keep watch over his soul. Maybe at some point whenever he had an interaction with Samuel, Samuel told him about Hannah's prayer when she prayed 1 Samuel 2.9, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. He comes here to the God who can save him. He is the God who delivers the afflicted and the needy. He knows the book of Exodus, that God saved a whole nation of afflicted and needy slaves out of the most mighty nation on earth at the time. He appeals to his grace, so he's coming here to the God who is gracious. You only have to go back to what we read a moment ago as God revealed himself in Exodus 34 to know that he's gracious. David knew from Scripture, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. And listen then how that truth about who God is becomes intensely personal. Psalm 86, verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. He's appealing to the God that he knows from scripture is gracious he's convinced he's gracious he's asking him to show him unmerited favor he comes to the god who makes glad there in verse 4 the esv gladden the soul of your servant lsb make glad the soul of your slave he's looking only to god to make his soul glad think of where people look to make their soul glad he knows that he is the God who puts gladness in the heart of his people, Psalm 4-7, a gladness that is for the upright in heart, Psalm 97-11. He knows that the king has joy in God's strength and he rejoices in God's salvation, Psalm 21-1. He is the man who wrote Psalm 16-11, writing, you will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. So he is convinced 
possessing a biblical knowledge of God that's guided him from his youth and is impacting him all these years later, that God hears, God answers, God preserves, saves, is gracious, makes glad the souls of his people. And the words of Scripture attest to that. His view of God has impacted where he goes here in difficult days. The giant of his youth is dead long ago, but there's giant situations of great significance that remain. Today, whenever we had our pastor's luncheon, Corey was sitting there beside me and and reminded of something that Brian says, that sometimes things are better caught than taught. See the godly man. See the godly man here with a high view of God from Scripture. See him coming to God in his day of trouble. See how this all comes together. He has observed a high view of God in his study from long ago. He's prayed a high view of God coming to him here in prayer. He's applied a high view of God to his life. What does a man with a high view of God recognize and how does he respond? He identifies who is mighty and he comes. Number two, he knows where help is found and he calls. He knows where help is found and he calls. David shows a high view of God by recognizing what is objectively true about God that relates to his situation and he calls to him. Look at what he knows is true there in verse five about God before he makes another appeal. Verse five, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to, who all, to all who call upon you. Yahweh is good, Yahweh's ready to forgive, which also expresses he realizes there's a gulf that exists between God and man because of sin. He's a sinner in need of forgiveness. But he also says, Yahweh is abundant in loving kindness. That's the word you're probably familiar with, has said, the never-failing, covenant-keeping love of God. How did David know that? Is that just from inside of him somewhere? Was it from feeling of his presence? No, all of those are attributes that are tied back to how he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. He's good, ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon him. How does he know that? Deuteronomy 4 verse 7, Moses said, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? David just has attested to the fact in his prayer that Yahweh is abundant in his said, expressing God's faithfulness to his people. Certainly he's good, certainly he's ready to forgive, and his love is never failing to those who call on him. This is his people. These are his people. David later wrote, Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So knowing this that he knows about God from Scripture, what does David do? He calls on him. Verse 6 and 7, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. He knows where help is found because he knows his God. God is good, ready to forgive, loving to all who call upon him. His response is demonstrating faith to what has been revealed in Scripture. He's calling on him here in his day of trouble. Number three, he realizes why God is unique and he confesses. He realizes why God is unique and confesses in verses 8 through 10. 
His high view of God is built upon a biblical foundation that acknowledges the fact that this God is distinct from all others, and he is confessing this truth in these verses. Look at verse 8. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. What David is expressing here is that the very point that the Lord wanted to get across to the most powerful man on the planet in Moses' day, Pharaoh. He wanted Pharaoh to know, Exodus 9, 14, that there is no one like me in all the earth. He wanted Pharaoh to have a high view of God. And, and Moses got the point, singing there in Exodus 15, verse 11, after the mightiest king in the world, Pharaoh, and the strongest army lay under the Red Sea, Moses sings, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And the answer is, nobody. David knew this. He is confessing here the uniqueness of God who is different from all others. Look at what he's also confessing, verse 9. He alone made the nations. He alone is worthy of their worship. He alone will be glorified by them. One commentator said, one day even his enemies will praise God even if it is in their damnation. David confesses here the exclusive nature of of God's greatness and the work of his hand. Summing it all up, they're concluding, you alone are God. There's no other. So at the heart of his prayer in these verses is the heart of David's theology. A conviction established upon Scripture of the greatness of this God who is perhaps so often described in the negative, none or no one, there's no one like you. He has no equals in greatness, no equals in might and wisdom and goodness, faithfulness, holiness in, in what he has done. There is none that can compare to him. You can liken no one to him. How does David know that? Well, he knew Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, where God said, see now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Friend, if you have no concept of God from Scripture, if you followed, 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 this is a West Texas church conference, okay? If you have followed the trend to find him by feeling his presence, the God you're going to feel is going to be sorely lacking in the quality that David is highlighting, this uniqueness. He's going to be awful common, the same God that all men are feeling, that looks a lot like men. Christian, we need to confess what David is confessing here, that this God is unimaginably great. He's gloriously unique. That he must reveal himself to us in his word for us to grasp that he has no equal, that he is not confined by or with in creation like a man is. Watch what the psalm is showing us as it brings that all together. David is asking great things here of a great God who has no equal. I wonder if we think this way of God. Do we think so highly of him that we can affirm what Spurgeon said when he said, I dare say that we think that we magnify him, but in reality we belittle him with our highest thoughts? Or, or who said, 
It is not possible that mortal men should be thoroughly conscious of the divine presence without being filled with awe. Our highest thoughts of him fall short. The godly man realizes why God is unique and he confesses. Number four, he understands what God does and he considers. He understands what God does and he considers in verses 11 through 13. A high view here of God from scriptures expressed by David, knowing God on God's terms with the response being David considers what is absolutely most critical in this trial. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me your ways. He's saying, I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to know you more. I want to be a student of you as you have revealed yourself. He's not looking within. He's looking to God to train him, educate him in the ways of this none like him God. He considers that this is crucial if he's going to walk in your truth. One commentator noted that's a metaphor referring to David's desire to be faithful. Another noted, without divine guidance and divine teaching, we shall never know anything nor do anything aright. We cannot, therefore, be too urgent in our prayers for special grace and special enlightening, praying, teach me. You can, and I'm just a man I need to be taught so that my life demonstrates your greatness. I want to know you. I I want to submit to you. I want to be faithful. That's a God-glorifying response. But look, also the imperative comes after that, unite my heart to fear your name. He considers that it's crucial that his heart here is undivided, a heart completely loyal to God and to God alone, leading to this God-glorifying fear. Friend, when is the last time you ask God to unite your heart or to do anything in order to fear him? I think we're just always avoiding that whole idea of fearing God. It is a good thing for the godly man to fear God. It's a right thing. It's a proper response. Michael Reeves said, as the fear of the Lord grows, it outgrows, eclipses, consumes, and destroys all rival fears. He said, the loss of the fear of God is what ushered in our modern age of anxiety, but the fear of God is the very antidote to our fretfulness. So David here considers what God can do, teach and unite, that will lead to his walking God's truth and fearing God's name because this is priority to him. He considers where all of this is going to lead, verse 12, giving thanks and glorifying his name. And he even considers here the past in verse 13, God has directed his loving kindness, his has said at him, he has delivered his soul from the depths of Sheol. Number five, he discerns how God acts and comforts. He discerns how God acts and comforts. David's high view of God comforts his soul in this most trying time. Look at verse 14. Isn't it interesting that he has no problem here telling an omniscient, all-knowing God, hey, this is what's going on with me. He doesn't just go, well, God knows this. Why would I express that? Oh, God, Arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. His enemies are godless. They don't have any knowledge in some sense here of God, and their desire is take the godly man's life. So this isn't the most exciting thing to note 
probably as you leave here, but a high view of God doesn't purge your life of those who hate you. That's just a truth. And as many of you know, a high view of God may bring with it just more enemies who do hate you. David's response there in verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. At this point, you know where he found that. You know how he knows that from Scripture. And this truth is what comforts the godly man. Look at what he's doing in those verses. He can describe the insidious actions of his enemy that plot day and night to make his life miserable, trying to end it. And in the same breath here, he sets that against the truth that puts his enemies into a proper perspective. How God acts towards David. Compassionate, gracious, patient, loving. That's what matters most. It's the light in which he sees his enemies now. His doctrine of God who is gracious and compassionate to him puts his enemies in perspective. He, he is the guy who wrote, remember Psalm 56, 11, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The God who told Abraham not to fear that he was a shield, Genesis 15, 1, is with David. The God who told Joshua to be strong and courageous, Joshua 1, 9, He's with David here wherever he goes. The last expression here, number six, he recognizes when God responds and he concludes. Recognizes when God responds and concludes in verse 16 and 17. Look, look, five more imperatives come in the prayer. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant. Save the son of your handmade show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you oh lord have helped me and comforted me you already know that david is convinced of what god's able to do because he knows who god is and what he's capable of that he can do the very things that he's asking here and what he asked him to do is based on who god has revealed himself to be then in his word but just note that last imperative how and what david is concluding Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Now follow me. In a sense, I think that's exactly the same thing that he was saying in his youth. As he stood before a giant enemy who mocked the God of Israel, taunting the armies of the living God, the young man said, I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to remove your head. Why? First Samuel 17, 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly that's watching what's taking place may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Before Goliath is to draw his last breath, he wants him to have a high view of God. He wants him to look around and go, I had no idea. He, he wants his enemy to be in awe of the God of Israel and what he's done. That he is about to meet that very God when his life ends. And when, when the army of idolatrous Philistines see their greatest champion fall, the one in whom they place their confidence and their hope, he wants them to know that there is a God in Israel who is mighty and glorious. And then 
verse 17, he wants his enemies to know in whatever way the Lord chooses, in whatever sign that's good, he wants them to know the same, that there is a God in Israel, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished. Show me a sign that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Why? Because you, O Lord, have helped and comforted me. This is again about honoring God. David is showing us here that the one true God is found in his word and not your feelings. And who you find there directs your actions, sustains your life. That's the God-glorifying response. Submitting to what he says, not what you feel in your emotional state at the moment. So behold there, the man with a high view of God from Scripture. He identifies who's mighty. He knows where help is found. He realizes why God is unique. He understands what God does. He discerns how God acts. He recognizes when God responds. That didn't come from whatever he found within himself whenever he had indigestion, right? This came from objective truth that's sufficient to reveal the God of glory. And the outcome of it is it's directing his actions. He's responding to God on God's terms. He comes, he calls, he confesses, he considers, he comforts, and he concludes. I think there's a connection here where you see the theme of the gospel running through that psalm. Our understanding of who God is, the gulf that exists between us, that's impossible for man to do anything about, but the God who is mighty and who helps and who is unique, he comes and he saves us through his son. We must know God on his terms and respond accordingly. This honors him. Where would David be? And how would he respond apart from a high view of God? I think we have an answer to that. The answer is, Read First and Second Kings, and you get a, an idea from a whole bunch of kings who didn't, who didn't reply the same way. You get, a, you get to see a picture of a whole bunch of kings who didn't write any psalms. Where would he be apart from a high view of God? Probably like many in churches who think, speak, and act like those outside of the church, who have no concept of God apart from whatever springs up within them, whose whole concept of God is based on what they sense, and when their unanchored emotions give way, their whole world comes crashing down in a, in a pile of rubble that's despairing. How do you apply that? I think you have a high view of God from Scripture, by the way. Points of application, observe a high view of God in your study. When you sit down and you open up the book and you study the word, look for what it's saying about God. Also note what it's not saying that may be correcting you. So observe a high view of God in your study. Number two, proclaim a high view of God in your opportunities. Proclaim a high view of God and whatever opportunities he gives you. Maybe somebody else can catch from you what you're sort of catching and seeing in David here. And what I mean is teach a high view of God whenever anybody gives you an opportunity to teach. If they say, hey, I need you in the kids' room, 
run to the kids' room with a high view of God on your lips to make known who God is to that group that's in there. If you get an opportunity to teach Sunday school or in VBS, teach a high view of God. Proclaim God whenever you have an opportunity to counsel somebody. Show them what a biblical understanding of God looks like in their situation. Proclaim a high view of God whenever you disciple someone or whenever you study a book of the Bible together or whenever you lead your family devotions at night or whenever your coworker says, hey, I need a little bit of advice or whenever your neighbor confides in you. Number three, pray a biblical view of God in your prayers. Confess the truths of who he has revealed himself to be and what he's promised. You can say those things. A lot of times that's for your benefit, but you need to say those things. Number four, contribute to a high view of God in your church. Love, encourage, care, speak truth to one another, Colossians 3, 9. Show others what a high view of God looks like as a mom or a dad or a sibling or as a banker or as a broker. Help them. Help them in this way. And then as you gather there in the church, contribute to a high view of God by singing loudly those truths and those songs that proclaim a high view of God. Five, apply a high view of God in your life. Comfort your own soul with who God has revealed himself to be in his word and let truth direct your path. And when your circumstances are not as you would have planned them to be, you come, you call, you confess, you consider, you comfort, you conclude like the godly man or woman. A biblical view of God, friend, is essential in a healthy church. It's imperative that Christians are taught who God is from Scripture in the church and that you're regularly coming to feast on this truth of what's served to you. A healthy local church must constantly be nourished on a steady, theologically rich diet of a biblical doctrine of God that teaches and reproves and corrects and trains Christians, equipping you for whatever it is that is ahead of you so that you look and you sound a lot like the godly man of Psalm 86, especially in the day of trouble. So that that type of a man that we're looking at there, and you might be marveling about in Psalm 86, that he's actually common in a healthy church because they're filled with spiritually healthy Christians. Why? Why would that happen in a church? Because you're not being starved. Because you're being fed truth. You're not being fed a postmodern, liberal, idolatrous doctrine of God that's malnourishing your soul, leaving you weak, leaving you vulnerable, quick to fall, and easy for wolves to pick off. And when you possess that biblical doctrine of God that directs your actions, sustains your life, and glorifies God, friend, you will be ready for whatever comes. You will be ready to stand in a long line of godly men that go all the way back here to David and to be able to stand and even willing to die like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're not going to bow the knee. Like there are farmers who refuse to recant. Like the congregations who refuse to close. Like David who doesn't com go completely unwound here in his darkest day of despair. And like you will be whenever you're pressed. You will be able to stand ready and resolved to honor God. Father, we are grateful that you've allowed us to turn our attention to your word. So we pray, Father, from Psalm 86, incline your ear, O Lord, to our prayer. We give thanks to you with all of our heart for giving us the scriptures and making yourself known in all of your splendor and glory is revealed in your word. You are good, as the scripture has told us. You are ready to forgive. You are abundant in loving kindness. You are gracious. You are compassionate. 
It is our joy to gather tonight and to confess that there is no one like you, nor are there any works like yours. You alone are God. Teach us your ways, we pray, because our desire is the very same desire of the godly man here to walk in your truth. Unite our hearts because our desire is to fear your holy name. And may our fear of you outgrow, eclipse, consume, and destroy all rival fears. Equip us so that we may be prepared for whatever situation you have providentially brought our way, comes our way, that we may have a biblical understanding of who you are and that we may stand, that you would direct our actions, sustain our lives, and fulfill our greatest desire to bring glory to the one who is most worthy. In Christ's name we pray.